Hi, and welcome to the inaugural edition of the A16Z Bio Journal Club. I'm Hannah. Our goal here is to take an interesting new research paper in the field and talk about why it's cool, break down a little of the science involved, and consider what the implications of this research for industry might be. So in our first take, A16Z general partner on the bio fund, Jorge Conde, and deal team partner, Andy Tran, chat with me about two papers recently published. The first, transposon-encoded CRISPR-Cas systems direct RNA-guided DNA integration, was published by a group under Samuel H. Sternberg at Columbia in Nature of June 2019. The second is RNA-guided DNA insertion with CRISPR-associated transposases with a team under Feng Zhang from the Broad Institute, published in Science, also in June 2019. We talk about what these papers are all about in the field of CRISPR development and beyond. This mini podcast is available as part of our new A16Z bio newsletter. So if you like it and you want to hear more or read more, please sign up for the newsletter at a16z.com forward slash subscribe. Let's talk about what specifically is happening here. What yes. does do, what a transposon encoded CRISPR-Cas system direct RNA-guided DNA integration, <laughs> like what does that actually mean? Can you help me understand what was the interesting science that was going on yeah, here? Yeah, so what's really interesting in the field of CRISPR lately, and actually a few papers you know, that came out in the recent times, developed a way to basically use these transposon machinery inside the cell and use CRISPR to direct it into a specific place in the genome and really edit the genome without cutting it open at all. So you can think of it as this scarless type of genetic modification. Essentially what a transposon is, is is this sort of phenomenon that's been observed of where you have sort of these genes that jump into the genome. It's kind of mysterious what the jumping is really used for. People surmise that, you know, potentially, you know, it helps, you know, the, the cells and organism evolved in general. So what this paper shows is to utilize this CRISPR machinery um, known as Cascade, and it's formed by, you know, Cas6, Cas7, Cas8 proteins to really insert genes into the genome. And this Cascade protein is directed um, to the chromosome by using guided RNA, you know, CRISPR machinery, and it then binds to this transposase-associated protein, TNIQ, and it allows them to recruit this transposable elements and then effectively integrate the gene into the genome. And this is super powerful because now we're able to you know, add genes in the genome directly and precisely without cutting it open. It's a scarless way to modify the genome. So in some ways, this is almost like if CRISPR is about surgically inserting or editing DNA, mm -hmm. this is almost in many ways like plastic surgery, right? Ah. It's scarless. <laughs> right, right. Um, it doesn't leave a mark and therefore it in some ways is less risky from, a, from an intervention standpoint on the genome side. What it really boils down to is that this machinery ut utilizes a way to really efficiently integrate genes into the cell, into the genome specifically, without having to cut it open at all. And to the, the metaphor of the surgery, um, this is really important in the whole context of gene therapy as a whole, right? Because when we start off in, in gene therapy, we had these random integration of these transgenes into the cell. And, um, you know, this was a more stochastic process. So think of it almost as, you know, the arrival of this paper, this paper and papers like it are showing us that we've gotten to a point where we have a fully programmable ability to integrate new genes or new DNA into a genome without having to first open up or break apart the DNA to do that. So let's go back and actually situate it into the development of the science, what it represents for where we've gotten from where we, be, where we began. Yeah. So if you want to do the really, f the fast forward montage version of this. Yeah. 
the you know, 80s montage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so yeah. I, you'll, I'm sure you'll put in the pop music behind right. it. <laughs> yeah, and the overalls and the paintbrushes. <laughs> Here we start in the yes. 60s. And the time motion. <laughs> yeah, like. let's go. Um, but look, I mean, if you go all the way back, you know, one of the earliest sort of uh, technologies that came to the fore um, was the discovery of something called the restriction enzyme. And the restriction mm -hmm. enzyme was this ability to take um, this protein that could cut DNA at these predetermined sites, mm -hmm. essentially uh, open up the DNA, um, and then you could in in introduce new genetic material and it would eventually integrate randomly, but it would integrate into that that DNA. That's what gave us the ability to do re recombinant DNA technology, which gives rise to the entire biotech field. One of the earliest applications of biotechnology is getting bacterial systems to integrate human insulin so that we could coax bacteria to make that drug or human insulin on mm -hmm. our behalf, of course, to treat diabetics. So that starts the, the whole field. Now, you know, if you sort of move forward, the objective always has been, can you cure disease um, by re repairing or replacing what's broken right. in DNA? Mm -hmm. right. And so the whole field of gene therapy gives arises with this idea that, you know, can we introduce a, a corrected version of a, of a non-functional gene in a patient um, and have it do the job that the non-functional gene cannot do. The first version was just in, get put that gene into a viral vector, into almost like a, a delivery vehicle, mm -hmm. introduce that into patient cells, that gets taken in by the cells and the gene just starts to sort of do its its job. It integrates randomly in the genome, but it right. does the job it needs to do. Hopefully it integrates, or maybe it, it doesn't, but it just does the job to compensate for exactly. you know, some mutated gene. Right? Yeah, so it's basically almost a parallel support system mm -hmm. um, yes. that, that, the, that the cell has. We just had the first gene therapies approved over the course of the last couple of years. Um, if you look at the spark therapy, gene therapy drug for this rare inherited form of blindness. And so that was one big advance forward. Mm -hmm. Now that is introducing a full gene and just like, hoping it, it gets taken up by the cell. You just kind of throw it in the mix. Yeah, you throw yeah. it in the mix and yeah. it has its own risk. The original discovery of CRISPR-Cas9, that system, the way that system works is by making what's called a double-stranded break in the DNA molecule. So if you know if you think of you know we all remember DNA uh, from high school biology as sort of the, the the beautiful double helix. So imagine sort of cutting that double helix in two. Yeah, it sounds and brutal. Making an end, right? And yeah. then you know and then putting it back together. Yeah. That's not riskless, right? And by the way, it's very well known and documented that one of the big setbacks that the gene therapy field had a couple of decades ago was when they ran a clinical trial. Um, at the University of Pennsylvania, there was a patient named Jesse Gelsinger who died after receiving the therapy just because there's a lot of risk associated with introducing, you know, a viral capsid with a gene mm -hmm. into a cell system, into, into human being where you could have a catastrophic result. And that patient died. And that actually put a big pause on how we thought about developing gene therapies for humans. But that approach will have and does have therapeutic potential. And there are several companies that are pursuing developing CRISPR-Cas9-based therapeutics. As that advanced in parallel, we started to see other uh, gene or genome editing technologies come to the fore. So the first one was one known as zinc finger nucleases, which really didn't have as much uptake as, as one would expect because it's just very hard to deal with these proteins. How zinc fingers work is that you actually use these proteins to bind onto DNA sequences. And every time you want to iterate to find a new target, costs tens of thousands of dollars and a few months to develop one protein. Oh, so, so it's enormously expensive and labor intensive. Exactly. So yeah. it never really caught on like wildfire in the community, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very bespoke process. Right. Sort of, it's it's a, you know, a one at a time type of thing. Um, and then there were other other technologies. There was um, talons, which you mm -hmm. know is a bit better than, than zinc finger nucleases. But really the big... Um, sort of a shift in the field was the arrival of CRISPR. 
And so when scientists discovered CRISPR, you know, they noticed that it was this always constant evolutionary warfare between bacteriophages and bacteria, you know, for, you know, billions of years. Bacteriophages are viruses. Yes. And so, you know, um, when these viruses you know, inject their viral genome into the bacteria, you can think of it as the bacterial immune system, whereas they're able to sense these little um, snippets of viral genome, um, they would create a vaccination card from it, and then they'll put it back into this, what is known as this CRISPR array. And this would be like a vaccine card or a vaccine database, if you will. So every time it recognizes that foreign viral sequence- Right, then it knows what to do. It would know how to snip it away, yeah. right? And then people have hijacked this machinery. So what if we can program, you know, um, this outside of bacteria and use it in human cells and program it to sense not viral um, DNA, but specific targets in the human genome. And then, then we can program, you know, and effectively target anywhere we want in the cell, right? So now bring us forward to today. So is this new development, does it mean that the therapeutic potentials are essentially less risky or are there new possibilities that we haven't been able to do before? Or both. So basically, you know, it's really powerful because when, when we talk about the first gen of gene therapy to the second gen of CRISPR, this paper really represents this third wave in, in this scarless genomic editing. This is basically genomic surgery at its finest, right? You know, when, when we think about laparoscopic surgery and all these advanced surgery tools, we want to have, you know, basically a scarless methodology of, of doing surgery. This is a way to really cleanly integrate, you know, genomic segments into the cell without even touching, right? And then this also represents an even broader tool of, you know, the entire, you know, genomic toolkit landscape. The real promise in, on, on the near-term side is that we get to a point where you can make scarless integrations mm -hmm. of genetic material into the DNA. So mm -hmm. it's less traumatic in that regard. So if you can do that more precisely, there's less scar tissue that hopefully is, you know, a better, a better intervention altogether. So that holds great promise from a, a potential for future therapeutics based on this type of technology. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that in a relatively short period of time, the programmability of these kinds of systems has improved, has improved dramatically. Mm, yeah. So the kinds of things that we could do, that we can do now with, you know, with CRISPR based on these kinds of advances gives us a very broad repertoire and toolkit to work with whether it's for therapeutic applications or for diagnostic applications or for any other number of things. When most people think about CRISPR, um, developing CRISPR for human health, they're thinking about therapeutic applications. Mm -hmm. But the reality is there's also a lot of potential for diagnostic applications. So going back to the original discovery of the CRISPR-Cas system, this was um, essentially the memory bank or immune system for bacteria to remember what viruses had attacked it before so they could protect right, themselves right. going forward. Yeah. And the way it does that um, is by uh, essentially cutting that viral uh, uh, genetic material so it's ineffective, essentially, mm -hmm. basically, you know, cutting cutting it off at you know at, at its Achilles heel, so to speak. And so, as you can imagine, if you're hijacking that capability for therapeutic purposes, you could also hijack that capability for diagnostic purposes. And a way that that could potentially work, for example, is if you know what bacteria or what virus or even what you know mutation in DNA you're looking for in a, say a, a, a human sample, blood sample or urine sample or anything like that. If it's present, it will get cut by the right CAS system. You program the, the CRISPR-Cas system to say, these are the, the sequences of genetic material 
that I am looking for in the sample. This is basically the search engine. Like you're doing essentially a Google search. And you basically just look for the kill switch to be to have been activated. You just look for the identifier. So you basically say, if I want to look in this patient sample, let's say I want to look for a specific bacteria or a specific virus or a specific genetic mutation associated with disease, you can say, if you find the presence of any one of these sequences, those are almost like the search terms, cut them. And when you cut them, you can essentially engineer the system to send out some sort of a reporter. A reporter. Usually it's a visual marker. Mm-hmm. And so it basically, if it lights up, it's because the CRISPR-Cas system cut the DNA you told it to look for. And so it's that there. has a potential yeah. diagnostic application. And you could run that diagnostic essentially without a lab, right? Because it, it just happens with, with the biology. So a whole other kind of new tool, essentially. Yeah. So I, I th- and I think the, di- the diagnostic applications for these these kinds of technologies are actually pretty, pretty uh, intriguing because most of the way we do diagnostics is based on developing some very, you know, specific biological um, or chemical assays. So look for something and if, if so, have a reaction take place and one that I can visualize and quantify or quantitate in some way. But here you're just basically letting the biology do the work for you. In the, the CRISPR toolkit, you know, um, a lot of the initial, you know, applications was using, you know, CRISPR-Cas9, this one nuclease. And actually the diagnostic um, application that Jorge was talking about was actually using these these other nuclei known as, you know, Cas13 and Cas12. And so all these all these different CRISPR proteins, Cas9, 12, 13, XY, that we're continuing to discover has all different fundamental applications, right? Even fundamentally changing what these CRISPR nucleases even do. It doesn't even cut anymore. It can do, you know, scarless editing. And then we can even add different applications on it. You know, there's new applications um, adding, you know, deaminases just to do base editing. So we can really do single base pair resolution editing. That's really the, the final frontier of precision in terms of genomic modification. And I think what's really important is that we've really seen this shift from um, when it became this random bespoke science and really turning into, you know, full-fledged modified engineering tool. And, you know, this paper that, that we talk about here is not only a great you know, representation of, you know, this engineering biology thesis, but also um, a pretty huge potential step change for the field as a whole. You can program this to turn genes up and down as opposed to just editing them. Um, there's even work that's ongoing to use this technology um, to image DNA directly, which is a pretty remarkable thing because mm-hmm. it, since this is acting locally on DNA, you can add all kinds of, of agents to make it imageable. So therefore yeah. uh, you can observe, you know, Amazing. chromatin or genome yeah. structure directly. Yeah. So there's a lot that can that can be done with this technology. And you hear, you know, the old adage about the pickaxes for the gold. And with these toolkits, I mean, we are quite literally panning for gold here. Mm. I mean, these, so <laughs> where these things get found... Um, they, they're found in soil and in, you know, ocean vents and in <laughs> New York sewers. City subways. Yes, the New York City subway. You know, they, <laughs> so these people are quite literally looking in nature because nature has ingenious ways to do a lot of the things that we're trying to do from an engineering or bio, engineering biology or programmable biology standpoint. And so I think it's a remarkable moment to take pause and see how far this technology has come in a relatively short period of time this generation's recombinant DNA or restriction enzymes that really gave rise to the biotechnology industry. I think this this toolkit, this CRISPR toolkit, is, as we're describing it and discussing it, represents sort of the next frontier for what will happen in, in biology. So an incredible development of precision in what the tools can do, and at the same time, a huge expansion of what that will enable us to do going forward. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Should I say on the A16Z Journal Club? No, 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 please don't say yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> okay.